If you love what you do and you find fulfillment and passion and satisfaction in it, I don't think I'll ever stop working. Very rarely do you have a scientist who can formulate really elegantly and with these design principles in mind. Yes, we all want to make money, but are we also thinking about impact and making sure these are going to get to the people that need them the most? Welcome to season three of the Beyond Capital podcast. People always ask me, what is the secret sauce to marrying profit with purpose? We're back for another season to bring you the stories of successful leaders that are building and scaling purpose-driven businesses. I'm Eva Yazari, general partner of Beyond Capital Ventures. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Scoot. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how conscious leadership translates impact in all facets of a business and how it can show up in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. Whether you're a leader of a company, team, household, or just yourself, we hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired to take action every day. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Hitha Palapu. Hitha is a consummate multi-hyphenate, an entrepreneur, author, and speaker. As CEO of Roshan Pharmaceuticals, she oversees financing, partnerships, and strategy for the company. Her longtime blog, Hitha On The Go, established her as an authority on lifestyle topics and gave way to her book, How to Pack, Travel Smart for Any Trip. Hitha is also the author of We're Speaking, The Life Lessons of Kamala Harris. When she's not working or spending time with her family, you can find Hitha reading, usually a romance novel, although she says she loves all genres. Maybe we'll get into that in a little bit. She likes crafting, watching F1, and watching Philadelphia sports. Welcome, Hitha. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. It's incredible to have this deep dive conversation. I've known you for many years now, and it's great to have you on the show and go deeper into your conscious leadership and purpose-driven leadership journey. Thank you so much. And you've been a big part of that journey over the past, I don't even know how many years now. Thanks. So diving in, I want to start somewhat from the beginning, and it's actually been a recent theme on the show, having family members that are entrepreneurs. And your father is an entrepreneur who founded a pharmaceutical development company where you eventually worked as a VP. So can you share with us what you learned at a young age, watching your father build his company and working alongside him and how that added up to where you are today? You know, I was thinking about this and I think it was inevitable in a lot of ways um, when I was a kid and my dad was still more active in the lab than he certainly is now. He would go to the office on the weekends to check on experiments that were running over the course of a weekend. And I would tag along with him, usually to raid the stationary cabinet at said offices. But in the car on the way home or on the way there, I'd ask questions. What are you working on? He said, I'm making medicines. What kind of medicines? And that Eventually, as I got older, the answers became more detailed and more technical at a level I could understand. And I don't know if he realized that he was planting seeds uh, in me of wanting to do follow a similar path. 
Unfortunately for me, I am a disaster in the lab compared to him. So chemistry lab in college early on showed me that this was not my best and highest use to contribute, but I really cut my teeth in sales and marketing internships in college and eventually started my career at Cisco Systems in their sales associates program, but always had an eye of, I'm going to work with my father one day, especially as he became an entrepreneur when I was in college and I was helping him refine decks and storytelling in his own technical presentations. So when I got the opportunity to join what was a very fast growing company in 2009, it was in a lot of ways like my dream come true. But also I realized I thought I knew quite a bit about industry. I knew nothing. And I spent those first years really just getting caught up and learning all the details within pharmaceutical development and jumped around in different roles in the company, starting from project management, then operations, and ending in business development. And now my dad and I are together running another company that has been an amazing, amazing experience. And while he keeps threatening to retire, I don't really see it happening because he'll say, I have a great idea. And so begins yet another opportunity for both of us. My dad's 82 and he still runs his furniture store. I love it. Yeah. I think it's so important to, if you love what you do and you find fulfillment and passion and satisfaction in it, I don't think I'll ever stop working. And honestly, very much inspired by my dad and my parents. And I always know what to say to him. Like, hey, dad, sell any sofas today? (laughs) That's pretty easy. (laughs) Conversation starter. Automatic. But the question is, did you have a stationary closet to raid? Because I remember that too growing up. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Somehow kids love fresh stationary. So, um, I mean... Go ahead. I still do. Yeah. Nothing has changed. I still do. I I still firm believer that a new notebook is can change my life. Absolutely. So today, Roshan Pharmaceuticals is developing some exciting products that are really designed to be accessible. And this is kind of where yes. the conscious leadership aspect of your work comes in. The company's main focus right now is on an injectable form of aspirin. Please, of course, tell us about that product, but also please expand Mm -hmm. on how the impact of the products that you're creating is guiding the company strategy. My dad started his entrepreneurial career in pharma with a single thesis, which is there are a lot of products out there that were formulated in a way for speed, but not necessarily for the patient benefit or the provider, like the hospital pharmacist who's preparing the medication benefit. And we have a huge opportunity to improve upon some of these commonly used drugs or medicines that could be more commonly used with a reformulation strategy. And so that that is exactly what he started doing. Early on in his entrepreneurial career, he set up a very small lab in India, hired about eight scientists and started doing just that, like sourcing the active pharmaceutical ingredient himself, designing experiments that they would run and getting these programs to a really valuable formulation with the knowledge of, we know, we can scale this up to commercial scale and began licensing them to other companies that could finish development, file with FDA, and focus on the commercialization. That thesis still drives everything we do today. I think so often the industry is, I think, doing some incredible cutting edge and truly curative discoveries, 
And that doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities to improve on what our standard of care, whether it's for the patient benefit or the provider benefit, and making sure that they're affordable and they're accessible to all. So that has been a big guiding thesis for us and continues to be. And that's kind of what we screen every new product opportunity with is, does it hit these metrics? So is that like, okay, this is currently available in pill form and it upsets people's stomachs. So we're going to make it a different way. So it doesn't, or what's, what's a, an example of that kind of like making it more patient focused or centric a medication? Yeah. I could talk about our very first product, which was epoprostenol. Epoprostenol is a six-week continuous infusion drug to treat pulmonary arterial hypertension. The original product, Flowland, marketed by GSK, was so unstable that the patient had to change the cartridge on their infusion pump every six hours and had to put cold packs around it so the product wouldn't degrade. And changing a cartridge that much puts you at greater risk for infection, Cold packs around your pump is not comfortable and it's really cumbersome. And our presentation was a room temperature stable product that only needed to be changed once a day. So immediately you have that patient benefit of it is more convenient. It requires less changing. It has what we believe to be a better safety profile. And it was such a valuable product because we were able to develop a more room temperature stable presentation Our product was the first to be launched in Europe and in Japan, where GSK declined to even file that product in those markets. So, And now it's the market leader, and it was licensed to Actilion, who then was acquired by J&J, and now it's being sold under the Johnson & Johnson umbrella. That's awesome. Probably not as cold. You mean feeling on the body? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if it's going into you and it's cold, it probably gives you a chill. Yeah, and so that's one (laughs) example. Another product my father oversaw development of is a cancer drug called bendamustine. And this was a product used for blood cancers with a 60 or a 90 minute infusion time. That is a long time for a patient to be sitting in a chair. The formulation that he developed, we discovered and we did the clinical studies to show this, showed that it could be infused in a fraction of the time, 15 or 30 minutes. So not only is a patient being able to spend less time in an infusion chair for oncologists, they're able to turn over their chairs and see more patients in a day, particularly those receiving bendamustine. So that's another valuable product where we took a look at what existed and what was cumbersome about it. In this case, it wasn't anything so much about the physical product, although the original product required preparation by the pharmacist under a hood. Ours is a ready-to-administer bag, mini bag that pop right on. So that one is a huge value added all around. And it's been doing extremely well in the market and helping a lot of people. I love how you're optimizing for multiple factors. So time, temperature, turnover of, of chairs as well. It's almost like you're applying design thinking to pharmaceuticals. That is all my father. I think he, <laughs> I call him a, I call him a triple threat of drug development because very rarely do you have a scientist who can formulate really elegantly and with these design principles in mind, but have those formulations be able to be scaled up to manufacturing at commercial scale and to find novel IP to protect said formulations. So I think 
he is the most impressive person in the world. Obviously, I am biased, but I think he's got the goods to back it up. And it really is a privilege to work with him and to think thoughtfully about our commercial strategy and making sure these partners that we work with have the same values and intentions we do about, yes, we all want to make money. That is the point of a business. But are we also thinking about impact and making sure these are going to get to the people that need them the most? Oh, I was just going to say we should have him work on a hangover. <laughs> Do you still need those? <laughs> well, occasionally. Okay. No, for the world, not for me. Yeah. But for, now, for if, if you have Instagram, just open it up after this conversation because you'll get a bunch of advertisements for hangover cures. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't have Instagram. Yes. but I'm a Luddite. That's okay. I'll show you. I'll show That's you on good my for you. phone. But Hitha's uh, father can absolutely work on an optimized version of All that. Right. I think it's a good idea. I digress. But I was <laughs> thinking know? about the world, not myself, just to be clear. Makes sense. I was just okay. joking. So <laughs> you mentioned the doctors as like a stakeholder that your your mm -hmm. company is optimizing for. Who are the other stakeholders that that you're thinking about when you're developing your products? A lot of our work has been focused on hospital or cancer type products. So the hospital pharmacist that's actually preparing these meds is a big stakeholder of ours. And we have great relationships with some of the leading chief pharmacy officers in the country. Nurses, they're the ones normally preparing if it's a bedside preparation product and administering it, making sure the nurses are happy about it. So in the case of injectable aspirin, the only alternative right now, non-oral aspirin on the market is a rectal one. Mm -hmm. Nobody likes that. So they yeah. immediately are very excited at the prospect of an injectable presentation. Insurers and Medicare, Medicaid, the CMS is a big one. When you have a really novel presentation, to be able to get a J code to price it, and again, you dictate price, and we always look to price it at an accessible barometer, but also it is an advantage over generics. And so we want to find a good sweet spot of an accessible price, but it is still a novel product, making sure they're on board. And then hospital systems or group purchasing organizations that are handling procurement and contracting for the big hospital systems, that's another big stakeholder. So if they're excited about your product and they see that there's enough margin for everyone to effectively provide value in getting these products to patients, that's another stakeholder. Now, I do wish we had a flatter distribution chain from the manufacturer to the patient in my industry. It is still pretty multi-layered and I would argue a little bloated, but I'm hoping in time we can find advancements and some consolidation to get the best price to the patient. Incredible. I'm, I'm inspired by the Mark Cuban cost plus drugs model. Do you have I'm any obsessed. intersection with that? <laughs> Just curious what your perspective is. I think it's brilliant, especially for the commonly used drugs where generics are available. But because insurance and who your insurer is and who your pharmacy is can affect and dictate price so much, the level of transparency he is providing is unparalleled in American healthcare and it's never happened before. So while the types of products we're working on right now aren't necessarily a fit because they're administered in a hospital or in a specialty care setting, I am thinking about ways and things we could do, particularly in women's health, to be able to partner with them as them being our exclusive pharmacy and distributor of drugs 
where, you know, these are products that are often not even getting insurance coverage to begin with. So where can we develop some either great value generics or improved versions of existing drugs that can get to the people that need them the most at a cheaper price point than they're getting right now? Because you have a single player on the market who is taking advantage of that and pricing them at whatever they want. Wow. I think that's great. And just a a side note, Mark, if you're listening, we're in Dallas and we'd love to have you on the show. (laughs) (laughs) But we digress. We could have Mark. (laughs) We would love that. So, Hitha, I want to shift gears. You do a lot and you're very inspiring in that way, but you're an active investor and you've invested in several female founded companies including Hey Mama, Daily Harvest, M.M. LaFleur. Why is this a theme in your personal portfolio? You know, I think there was a point where I was no longer content at just being a customer and a fan of a brand or a creator promoting a brand. And I saw these businesses growing and scaling, and I wanted to be a part of it in a more meaningful way. And that did coincide with earnings and being able to generate some wealth that qualified us as accredited investors. So Emma LaFleur was my very first investment and it happened very almost accidentally. Sarah and I were catching up and we were talking about negotiating. And I think at one point I said, wait, why are we talking about negotiating? What's going on? And she mentioned she was raising her first round. And I said, I want to invest. I was one of their first customers. I like sent a cold email when they launched going, I'm obsessed with everything about this brand. I'm literally wearing MM right now and, you know, built a friendship from there. And, you know, I asked, can I I invest? She said, can you? And I said, well, I have the money. And she goes, no, are you an accredited investor? Which set me on a little Google search. And I was like, oh yeah, I actually, we we need this. Do we need paperwork? And you don't, you self-declare on the investment documents. But that was our first investment. And for me, it was wanting to be a part of the overall solution of putting my money where my values are. And this was before the statistics were really public about how little capital women founded companies, venture capital women founded companies raise. And so to be able to be a small part of the solution and turning that tide felt very much aligned with my values and how I wanted to make an impact in the world. And I had had experience in, you know, running ops for a company and business development that I thought I could also offer value as an investor in terms of my own experiences in being a business leader. So it's been a wonderful chapter of our careers. Certainly, I think right now, and I think all of any investor can can empathize with this. It's a bit of a pause in terms of deploying more capital as we just sort of wait for some liquidity from earlier investments and really taking care of our earlier investments and making sure they have the resources and we're there to give them advice to help them thrive and succeed and get to that next inflection point. But when you talk about impact investing, that has been one way we practiced it and making sure we're putting in our money into businesses we believe in and solutions we believe in that are in whatever way making the world a better place. And how do you find the Time, but probably more importantly, the energy and enthusiasm for all of your projects. (laughs) And we'll unpack a couple more, including your books. I don't handle, I think, idle time very well. Or if I do, it has to be very intentional. I think I find I get a lot of energy in spending time with my portfolio company founders and brainstorming and giving them advice wherever needed and hearing them 
what's going on at the moment. Same with writing and creating content. It's something that really does light me up. Many of these things started as hobbies or just ways I enjoyed spending my time and became careers. I didn't necessarily set out saying, this is my job now, with the exception of life sciences. And even then, for me, I enjoy my work, but I also enjoy the opportunity to spend this much time with my father and our team. And it really, I feel like I'm living my dream, truly. Like I enjoy all the things I get to do every single day. With that, I don't want to miss out on things. And I do probably overload my plate a bit, but it's all things I'm genuinely excited to do. Nothing feels like drudgery or a chore or something I'm dreading. Okay. Love that. So you're a writer, a blogger, social media proficient, and and really um, have some amazing track record in all three of those. So if you had to choose one, writing, blogging, or social media, which one of those would to, to you know to do exclusively? You couldn't do the other two. This is a weird planet rule that just got enforced <laughs> by the by the planeteers. And um, which of those three would you choose, and why? Here's the thing about writing books is you need social media to promote books these days. So you can't have one without the other, but I never would have gotten my book deals had it not been for social media. So I guess I'm picking social media. Fair enough. I get to do it all there. Photography, video, speaking, writing. So I guess that scratches as many of my itches as possible. (laughs) While we're on that topic, tell everybody where to find you on social media, but afterwards, Talk about that journey. Like what role has that played for you? You mentioned there was like a sequence of events, right? You started out with social media, the books followed. I I would love for you to just give us that kind of timeline and sequence of events. Yeah, I mean, right now my main home online is my Instagram at Hitha Palapu and my Substack, which is hitha.substack.com. You know, I have the same blogger origin story as any blogger, which is I had a very technical job and I needed a creative outlet. And in my case, I was traveling three weeks out of every month for work. So I needed a creative outlet that I could do from my laptop and did not require too many materials or whatnot. Listen, in those early days, my blog was terrible. (laughs) Like the outfits I would wear, the way I over-decorated my tiny apartment. I was really trying to emulate and the content that I saw the bloggers I liked reading, creating. And it wasn't until I wrote a post that was actually more focused on how I was living. And it was 10 essentials for a long flight, which I was traveling to India multiple times a year at that point. I had this down to a science and every product is so intentional. To this day, I just have updated versions of that. It's still basically the same list. I need that. I published that post. <laughs> I published that post. I hopped on a flight to Asia and I woke up and it had gone viral on Pinterest. Like it had been pinned over a million times. And I had had more traffic to my blog in that day. It was three times more than my lifetime blog traffic. And I was like, oh, this is my niche. This is what I'm going to write about. At the time, I was traveling so much that, and I also did a quick market analysis. No one was writing content on how most people travel, which is a few business trips a year, a few vacations a year, 
It was more the quit your job, sell your possessions, live out of a backpack type content. So I tripled down on just being of service and helping people with this single problem. And I realized packing does stress people out. It just does. Traveling can be extremely stressful. So if I could share the methods that help me pack in a carry on no matter what for business trips, vacations, combinations of the two, It made for one, me being of service and helping people in my own way. And two, filling a need that wasn't otherwise being met by creators on the internet. And it was still, you know, these were the early days of blogging in 2009, 10, 11. So you didn't have as many creators out there as you do now. That was really the, my launch pad that gave way to how to pack. I got approached to write the book by Clarkson Potter the day I came home from the hospital with my first son, Ro. And I thought I was still like on drugs. And I was like, did I hallucinate this? Can someone read this email and verify? Can someone Google this person and make sure they're a real editor? And I took Ro, like baby, one week old Ro, to Le Pan Cotidien in Midtown after his well check to meet said editor. And she's like, we're going to be sending you an offer letter soon. And I'm like, I just had a child and you want me to write a book and turn it in at the end of the year. And I don't even know. I've negotiated pharma deals. I don't know what a book publishing offer is. So very quickly (laughs) reached out to all my friends, asked about who their agents were. The first agent I talked to is the one I signed with. I'm obsessed with her to this day. She's a dear friend. And somehow managed to write this book before Roe turned nine months old. Incredible. Well, I think it shows that you have the mindset that anything's possible. My mom is the one to credit with that because when I got the offer and I was really wanted to take it, my dad and my husband were both of the, how are you going to do this? And my mom was the one who said, Mm -hmm. this doesn't happen every day. We will figure it out. And it really was a team effort. I mean, that woman is the reason I am such a I love travel. She's been traveling with me since I was six months old and taking me all over the country and the world with her. So this book is very much also a love letter to her. So what do you you think? Like rolling up your clothes, (laughs) is that... Is that a proven, is that an important technique or is that just a bunch of. (laughs) I'm a promiscuous packer. I roll some things. I fold other things. I stuff other things. It depends on the item. I need a private tutorial one day. (laughs) (laughs) I almost never Next time I'm in Dallas. Yeah. Next time I come to Dallas, I'll give you guys both like a private packing lesson. Thank you. Okay. Let's move on to your second book. You wrote (laughs) movingly about. Vice President Kamala Harris in your book, we're speaking. Why was it important to you to elevate her life story and lessons? So the same thing happened with we're speaking that happened with how to pack an editor cold emailed me and said, we think you're the perfect person to write this book. Are you interested? And this was, it was right like a few days after the election had been called in 2020 I was just entering diligence with our now partner for Roshan Pharma on the aspirin. And again, I was like, this is the worst possible timing. But when these things happen, you have to say yes. And with where how to pack, I had never written a book before. I didn't know how to write a book. My agent really taught me everything about that during the writing process. With we're speaking, after that first call, it was very clear what I wanted and I just knew what this book would be. 
And I remember writing the first half of the first chapter over Thanksgiving. It just flowed right out. At the time, my husband was on sabbatical from his career and so completely took the lead at home. My dad was living with us at the time and just jumping in and helping with the kids and managing the household. And I have an incredible team at home. I have a wonderful home manager. I have the most amazing caregiver that's been with us since Ro has, was a baby. And at the time, we also had Ro's old teacher as like a sitter for him to help him out with Zoom school and all that type of stuff. So that also was a huge team effort. And if it hadn't been for all of them, I couldn't have written this book. Why it was important for me to write this book about Vice President Harris is this is a woman of multitudes who had always been very reported on or represented in very slender, slim narratives that never once captured her whole self. And I knew that that would be the premise of the book is to try to show the whole person, which is why the book is also structured kind of with professional Kamalaisms and personal Kamalaisms, because we live but one life that has our work, our family, our passions all integrated, despite society trying to tell us we're supposed to separate and compartmentalize them. And so with this book, it really was important to show the whole person, not just the political leader most of us see, but to talk about the devoted daughter and sister and mamala and godmother to at least 14 children, and someone who she'll admit loves watching movies and cooking and laughing and dancing with her friends and family. So it was a privilege, an immense privilege to be able to write this book and publish one of the first books about the vice president and just honored. And I still go back and read certain chapters when I need in my own pep talk and reminder of these lessons. Did she find out about the book or was, did you she send- knows about the book? Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> That must have been a moment. It was. It was a very private moment, but it was it was it was very wonderful. So before we dive into rapid fire, I would be remiss if I didn't ask for some tips for our listeners on creating content that resonates and building a community online. Can you talk a little bit more about what's working for you with your engaged social media presence? I think what's working for me is narrowing down for once. So I have tried to understand TikTok. I still don't quite get it. It's okay. I'm all right if I am not an expert on that platform. Twitter, similarly, I kind of jump in when I have something to say and otherwise withdraw. Instagram is my really the platform I focus the most on and it's where I focus on trying to deliver as much value as possible. So I've learned, I think everyone in the pandemic was probably using social media a little bit like therapy and I did overshare a bit. And what I learned from that is if this isn't something I'm happy to see as a a headline on the front page of the New York Times, don't share it. One thing and building some boundaries and then two, making sure every piece of content I share is in service. It's either helpful, informative, or for me, it's a way to just memorialize a really great moment or experience. So being a lot more thoughtful about what I do post makes it so that I might not post every day and that's okay. But when I post, I feel like I'm proud of it. It matters. Five smart reads. 
I'd also say consistency is really important. If you want to build any kind of engaged following community on social media, Five Smart Reads was a really easy way to do it. It's my daily news curation of underreported stories and underrepresented perspectives. And it was an easy thing for me to create that was already in line with what I was doing, which was reading the news every day. And two, starting conversations around stories I found important that necessarily weren't getting the same kind of coverage as whatever was trending or whatever was most sort of salacious or profitable for news organizations. And I don't have to be camera facing. It's just written words on an Instagram story. And it made it easy to show up every single day consistently without having to add in any extra time or labor on my end. It's also now it's daily free newsletter as well. So for the people who don't want to start every day on social media, similarly using the ask me anything and the questions feature was just my way of saying, how can I help? What's going on with y'all today? And that's now kind of evolved into a feed series, which I call question answer crowdsource, because I realized I was getting great responses for my community on their advice on some of these questions that I was answering. And I'm like, these are just going to get stuck in my DMs. And it's so hard to organize and try to reshare. So I decided to just put them on the feed and let these the comment section become a really robust community of conversation around fun things and frivolous things like makeup and books we love to the hard things of how do we teach our children about money? How do we care for aging parents? How do we deal with toxic or tough work situations? So it's been a really fun new series for me. I'm very much enjoying it. It seems like my community is enjoying it as well. And it's helping me reach people who aren't otherwise following me because folks are sharing it because there is great content in those comments from everybody. Amazing. I just, the, the focus great on tips. community. Yeah. Great tips for focusing on, on, on community as well. So let's dive into the rapid fire questions. Yes. Hitha, what book is on your nightstand right now? My Kindle is on my nightstand <laughs> and I am currently reading Night Chaser by Amanda Boucher, who is one of my favorite fantasy authors. This is actually a sci-fi series that she's writing. There's a duology and it's excellent. Highly recommend. Okay. What is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Oh, it's the latte my husband makes for me every single morning. Bless oh, him. That's very sweet. Name something that's giving you hope right now. My children give me hope. Everything can seem awful, but when you just consider their creativity and their optimism about the future, it reminds you to not give in and give up. And a reminder that the long arc of history does bend towards justice. It sometimes might take a couple loop-de-loops away from it before it finally ends up there. What is one trend you're watching right now in your industry? Drug pricing and specifically on insulin, seeing the big three insulin manufacturers willingly reduce slash insulin costs by significant margins. Now, again, Profitability, profits were going down on these products anyway. So now they're going with the scaled approach. And then you had the Inflation Reduction Act capping it for Medicare patients. But I'm excited to see if more of those trends follow 
And what I'd actually like to see is the U.S. government just becoming the largest procurer of the most essential medications and figuring out how to distribute them to the Americans in need, much like we did with the COVID vaccine distribution. And I think that could be a really interesting way of saying pharma companies price what you will, but we're about to be your biggest purchaser. And as your biggest purchaser, we expect to get preferential pricing and see how that works. So I thought you were going to say Ozempic. I I was thinking the same thing. But isn't that why the insul- insulin's going? That, yeah, oh, isn't is it? it? Isn't Ozempic kind of changing the diabetes? Supposedly. Anyway. I think it's also just this is the Ozempic. changing people going to the gym. <laughs> well, if you see the big three in diabetes and insulin are also the big ones of those type two diabetes, now weight loss type medications where the prices are going up. So you can see why, but I'm focused on the important essential drugs guys and Ozempic and that class of GLP antagonists are important for type two diabetes patients. And I just hope those patients are still able to access the drug. Me too. Great point. Do you have a favorite resource for staying up to date on current events in your industry? Is it a podcast or a website or a newsletter? For healthcare news, it's stat. Love it. It is really incredible reporting on what's happening in all facets of healthcare from life sciences and biotech to government regulations and reimbursement, as well as payers and what's happening in the hospital systems. I think for general news, I got to plug five smart reads. I created it because I wasn't satisfied by the sort of curative news newsletters and series out there. You're a high energy person, but every once in a while, you might just want to unwind. What is your favorite way to unwind? Watching a happy show that I've probably watched a million times, like The Good Place or Abbott Elementary or Ted Lasso, while needle pointing and sipping like a magnesium drink to help me go to sleep. Nice. Magnesium drink. I haven't heard that on the show before, but that's great. Oh my God. It's what is um, it? Moon Juice makes one. It's called Magnesium. It's got three forms of highly bioavailable magnesium that helps you calm, unwind. It's got L theanine for calm as well. And it tastes good. So it's just some, you know, when I'm at home and I haven't gone out, I'm not necessarily opening a bottle of wine just to have a glass by myself. So this has been like a really nice nightcap that also does help prepare me for sleep. That's a good plug. I need to look that up. Yeah, me too. What is one piece of advice you would give to your 20-year-old self? Ooh, stop buying so many going out shirts and save your money and invest it in the stock market. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great honest answer. Honestly, like 20-year-old Hitha's energy was, she was right on track. I just wish I had saved, been better about my money at a younger age. Okay, last rapid fire question. Um, If someone listening right now is thinking about starting a business, what piece of advice would you give them? Drill down into why you want to start this specific business. Because entrepreneurship is asking to be rejected and dejected on a near daily basis. The losses in frequency are going to outnumber the wins, but the wins are the ones that keep you going. So really hone down into why this business, why you, and don't be focused on the process, be focused on the intended goal and the outcome you're working towards. Because I think all of us 
know that nothing goes according to the first plan, the second plan, or even the hundredth plan. You need to be resilient. You need to be steadfast and sure in your intention. And you need to be willing to take a lot of hits and get a lot of no's. Get ready for the pain train. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Hitha, with that, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, our hearts. It's been an incredible episode. Thank you for your time and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Hitha. Thanks. Once again, it's clear that conscious leaders can find a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company in a truly holistic way, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me at EA Stevens on Twitter. And you can follow me at Conscious Investor on Instagram.